أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين Salaamu alaykum dear brothers and sisters wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad. Alhamdulillah, we've reached the sixth year after the Hijrah. We concluded our discussion on the Battle of Ahzab, also known as the Battle of Khandaq. We spoke about uh, the details of what transpired in that famous battle. We left off, uh, our last uh, discussion was specifically on the revelation of Surah Al-Munafiqoon. And now, in today's episode, we will open up a new discussion on one of the most important events of the sixth year after the Hijrah. And this indeed is a major turning point in the seerah. It's a huge turning point uh, in the future of Islam. And this event is famously known as Sulhul Hudaybiyah. So this is the, called the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now, as you recall, my dear brothers and sisters, the Battle of Ahzab, where the Allied forces, where the Jews and the Quraysh had come together, and they formed a massive tribe of nearly 10,000 soldiers with the objective of destroying Islam, that campaign, that military campaign failed. So the Battle of Ahzab was dealt a crushing defeat to the enemies of Islam. So the Battle of Ahzab and the extermination of the tribe of Quraiva who had committed treason against the Prophet from within Medina, this defeat, the defeat of the Allied forces in the Battle of Ahzab literally obliterated Quraysh's hope of ever destroying Islam and the Muslims. Because that battle represented their maximum effort. You know, as they say, they pulled out their big guns in that battle and they failed. So if they were unable to defeat the Prophet with those numbers, with that with that scale of an attack, it became very clear to Quraysh that Islam is not going anywhere. That Rasulullah and his companions are here to stay. There is a narration uh, by Al-Waqidi in his Maghazi where he quotes the Prophet, and this is a statement from the Prophet after the Battle of Ahzab, where Rasulullah he says, Quraysh qawmun qad adarrat bihimul harb wanahakathum. After the Battle of Ahzab, now mind you, the Mushrikeen had fought against the Prophet in Badr, in Uhud, and there were skirmishes and uh, there were skirmishes in between these events. And then you have the Battle of Ahzab, the Battle of Khandaq. So the Quraysh are 
experiencing military loss after military loss, military defeat after military defeat. So the Prophet ﷺ, he highlights here that Quraysh is a people who have been harmed and exhausted by war. They've lost their appetite for war because they've had to stomach a lot in terms of loss of life and loss of financial resources. So the battle of Ahzab, after the battle of Ahzab, you see that the Mushrikeen, the Quraysh, are not as enthusiastic about engaging in full-on warfare with the Prophet ﷺ. And this is where you see that in the sixth year after the Hijrah, they're much more receptive to the, the notion of a treaty. You know, a treaty was not even an option for them prior to the sixth year after the Hijrah. Now, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is such a monumental phase in the seerah of the Prophet that there is actually a Quranic reference to Sulh al-Hudaybiyah. And it's mentioned at the beginning of Surah Al-Fatih, which is the 48th Surah of the Qur'an. And it's mentioned as a precursor to the eventual conquest of Mecca. So we know that Rasulullah he conquered Mecca in the 8th year after the Hijrah. And this is something that uh, we will come to discuss in our subsequent uh, discussions. In the 8th year after the Hijrah, the Prophet conquers Mecca. But really what allowed him, what allowed the Prophet to reach that military strength, to be able to conquer Mecca, essentially happened at this point, because of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And hence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah as the clear victory. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah 48 verse 1 he says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. After the treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed, and inshallah we'll speak about uh, the details of that uh, treaty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed, we have given you a clear victory. And notice, even the usage of the majestic we by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't say, I gave you a clear victory. He says, we have given you. Because the glory and the strength that was given to Islam as a result of this treaty is so notable and so tremendous. It's a tremendous bounty that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the pronoun we, the majestic we, when he speaks about uh, the great blessings and the great victory uh, that was uh, realized through the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now, one of the reasons why this is such an important juncture in the seerah is because when you examine the circumstances of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, you see that this treaty is quite relevant uh, to Muslim minorities, especially today, where Muslims are minorities in many parts of the world, where Muslims are 
uh, marginalized, where they lack the power and the resources to confront the oppressors and the tyrants of their time. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah demonstrates to us that sometimes we have to accept the reality on the ground. We have to accept the fact that sometimes we are not able to fight tyranny and to combat injustice through military engagements. And therefore, sometimes the only option that we have is to form political alliances with oppressors and allow them to implement unjust policies in order to achieve a greater objective. You know, This is where we see the Prophet He's willing to take a loss, if we want to use, you know, uh, if we want to use that word. He's willing to take a short-term loss in order to achieve a long-term victory. Now, of course, such decisions are not made by the laity. Such decisions, knowing when to enter into treaties and uh, when to form political alliances, these decisions, we leave them to the fuqaha, we leave them to the, the ulama of Islam, we leave it to the maraji' to give us guidance on how to move forward. So such decisions must be made by learned scholars and jurists who are able to accurately assess the costs and the benefits of such agreements and to ensure that the the maslaha, that, the, that this is something that is going to benefit Islam and the Muslims in the long term. Now, to give you a little bit about the background story of Hudaybiyah, Al-Waqidi, who's you know, one of the prominent uh, historians of the Seerah, in his Maghazi, he reports that in the month of Shawwal, so this is after the month of Ramadan, in the sixth year after the Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ, he sees a dream. He goes to sleep and he sees that he has a vision, he has a dream. And Waqidi says, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ قَدْ رَأَى فِي أَنَّهُ دَخَلَ الْبَيْتِ The Prophet, he sees a dream that he was entering the Kaaba. وَحَلَّقَ رَأْسَ and that he was shaving his head. وَأَخَذَ مِفْتَاحَ الْبَيْتِ and in the dream he saw that he, he was taking, he had taken hold of the keys to the Kaaba, the key that presumably opens the door to the, in, the inside of the Kaaba. وَعَرَّفَ مَعَ الْمُعَرِّفِينَ and the Prophet saw himself going to Arafat, going to the plains of Arafat and performing uh, the acts of worship while staying on the, uh, the plains of Arafat. And as a side note, brothers and sisters, usually when uh, we speak about the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, what is commonly mentioned is that the Prophet sees this dream, he wakes up and he tells his companions that let us go and perform Umrah. Right. However, 
there are some reports, such as this one, that indicates to us that what is more likely is that the Prophet ﷺ saw himself in his dream performing Hajj. Why? Because standing in Arafah is not part of Umrah. The standing in Arafah is actually one of the rites of Hajj. So even though what is popularized is that the Prophet sees a dream that he's performing Umrah and he goes and he wakes up and he goes and he marches towards Mecca with the niyyah of performing Umrah, that seems to be less likely based on uh, some of the wording in the reports that we see. So because there's a mentioning of Arafah, what's more likely is that the Prophet ﷺ sees a dream that he's performing Hajj and he goes with the intention of performing Hajj, the major pilgrimage and not the minor pilgrimage. Now this dream of the Prophet ﷺ is actually alluded to in the Qur'an. So this is not something that's just mentioned in the historical references in Kutub al-Sirah, nor is it something that we have taken from hadith sources. This is actually mentioned in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Fatih, ayah number 27, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ Indeed, Allah will fulfill His Messenger's vision in all truth. لَتَدْخُلُنَّ الْمَسْجِدَ الْحَرَامِ إن شاء الله آمنين محلقين رؤوسكم ومقصرين لا تخافون فعلم ما لم تعلموا فجعل من دون ذلك فتحا قريبا. So Allah says Allah will fulfill his messenger's vision in all truth. That dream that the Prophet had, it will become actualized, it will be realized. Allah willing, you will surely enter the sacred mosque in security. You will be safe. Some with heads shaved and others with hair shortened, without fear. He knew, Allah knew, what you did not know. So He first granted you the triumph or the victory at hand. There's a few points that I think are worthy of reflection uh, with respect to this ayah. Is that number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ رَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ All human beings have dreams. Right? Having a dream is a common human experience. Many of us probably have, we have dreams every night. However, our dreams are quite different from the dreams of prophets and imams. And that is in the fact that their dreams always come true. They are a type of divine inspiration. It's a type of revelation for the prophets. Indeed, dreams are one of the ways in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicates to his prophets. Whereas you and I, the overwhelming majority of our dreams are 
as the Quran calls them, Adghathu Ahlam. They are just jumbled up, incoherent images. And they don't have meaning. And I know, you know, many people are very sad uh, when they hear this, but this is the reality. Our dreams should not be given the same weight. Just because you have a dream, it doesn't mean that this is some type of vision and this will happen. And unfortunately, many people, they make very important life decisions based on dreams. And this is un-Islamic, my dear brothers and sisters. We have nothing in the Sharia that tells us that we should be giving, we should be giving this much weight to our dreams. Yes, sometimes we have true visions. But the only way for us to know the true interpretation of a dream is for one of awliyaullahs, a prophet, to interpret our dreams, a ma'asum to interpret our dreams. So if you look at the story of Yusuf, who accurately interpreted the dream of the king? Yusuf salam, Prophet Yusuf. So yes, we can have, regular people can have true visions, but the only way that we can decipher what these visions mean or what, if, whether or not these dreams have meaning is that we have to consult with someone who has been given this special knowledge by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Ibrahim sees a dream of him sacrificing his son, this is revelation for him. But if I have a dream that I'm sacrificing my son, that's not, it would be haram for me to act on such a dream. Because my dreams are not divine revelation. Whereas the dreams of prophets are divine communication. So number one, the dreams and the visions of prophets come true. Because they are a type of revelation. This is divine communication. And therefore, we should never compare our dreams to the dreams of prophets. Number two, is that this ayah is an example of Ijazul Quran. This ayah is an example of the miraculous nature of the Quran. Because this ayah was revealed before the Prophet had entered Mecca. So this ayah predicts and foretells, foreshadows the Prophet's eventual entrance into Mecca which at this, point, at this point seemed to be quite impossible. So the foretelling of the Muslims entering Mecca, despite all of the dangers and the obstacles, is a type of ilmul ghayb. It's a type of uh, revelation of knowledge of a future event that had yet to take place. So this is one of the miraculous uh, aspects of the, the Qur'an. The fulfillment of, the mentioning of a sort of a prophecy that would happen. Number three, although the dream of the Prophet ﷺ will surely come to pass and it will be actualized and realized, you notice that the ayah says what? لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ رَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ لَتَدْخُلُنَّ الْمَسْجَدَ الْحَرَامَ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ آمِنِينَ so when the Prophet ﷺ relays this vision to his companions, even though he knows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make this dream come true, the Prophet ﷺ still makes the fulfillment of this dream contingent 
upon the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Reminding himself and reminding his listeners that this only happens with the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything that transpires is under his control. I don't have any independent power to make anything happen without the support of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number four, and this is what's mentioned at the end of the ayah, فَعَلِمَ مَا لَمْ تَعْلَمُ And this is a very important message. He knew what you did not know. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this ayah reminds us that He is the only one who has full knowledge of the effects of our actions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what are the outcomes of these actions and these events. The treaty of Hudaybiyah upset a lot of the companions as we will discuss. It was not perceived as a victory. In fact, the majority of the companions saw it as a devastating loss, as a sign of humiliation that they were barred from entering Mecca. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says what? Allah says, God knows. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He knows what you don't know. He knows that there is khayr that will come out of this. He knows all of the consequences, the good and the bad, that will uh, be born out of this uh, event. So the Prophet ﷺ, he sees this vision, he sees this dream. And the Prophet ﷺ, he wakes up from this dream, and of course he knows that this is a type of wahi, this is a type of inspiration. He exhorts, he invites all of the Muslims to prepare themselves to perform this pilgrimage, to travel south to southwest to Mecca. And he tells them that you are not to carry more than one sword. Now, this was considered normal attire. So carrying one sword with you that was sheathed was not considered, you would not be considered someone who's armed for battle. It was very common for someone to walk around with a sword that was sheathed. So they were not wearing body armor, they didn't have arrows and spears. They were walking, the Prophet tells them that you are only allowed to carry one sword and it has to be uh, sheathed. So this was not something, and this was an, actually an indication. If you had your sword sheathed and you had no other weaponry, no shield, no armor, you were, you were seen as someone who is coming in peace. Now, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, the companion of the Prophet, and Umar ibn al-Khattab, they insisted, they disputed with the Prophet. They said, Ya Rasulullah, we should take more uh, weapons with us. How can we just go with you know, a single sword to each man? So they started to argue with the Prophet saying that, no, this, is, this, is, this would be reckless of us. We need to go with more weaponry and more armor. The Prophet he tells them that we are going, we're only going to go and travel as pilgrims with this normal attire. We're not going to be armed to the teeth. We're not going for a, a military confrontation. So in any case, news spreads among 
the Muslims, it spreads among the Ansar, it spreads among the Muhajireen, and even their surrounding tribes, it is announced that Rasulullah is inviting everyone to go for this pilgrimage. Now you can imagine, among the Sahaba, you have a number of them who are Muhajireen, a number of them who emigrated from Mecca to Medina six years ago. So many of the companions, they were, especially the ones who were from Mecca, they were excited, they were yearning to go back to their homeland. So they were probably the most excited of all the Sahaba that, you know, after all these years, after being displaced and forced out and expelled from Mecca, now we have a chance to go back to our motherland, to our homeland. So the Muhajireen were definitely enthusiastic to go and perform this pilgrimage. Just like many of the events in the Seerah, the battles, uh, and the expeditions, you see that the Munafiqeen are continuously being exposed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that some of the, the nomads, the Bedouins, who had embraced Islam, they were living in the outskirts of Medina, they did not want to participate. So you have a significant number of Arab who are you know, the, the Bedouins, the desert-dwelling Arabs, they refused to join the Prophet because, you know, they were afraid that, you know, we are basically, you know, walking into the lion's mouth, as they say. That Quraysh, they are our uh, mortal enemies. You know, you want us to go on a pilgrimage and we're not, we don't, we're not armed for, for battle. And Muhammad is basically, in their minds, Muhammad is having us march towards our deaths. Why would we do that? So they refused to join the Prophet. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this. He mentions the excuses that they were making. And He mentions some of their nefarious motives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Fatih, Surah 48, verses 11 and 12, he says, سَيَقُولُ لَكَ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ Allah says, the, the Bedouin Arabs who stayed behind, they will say to you, meaning that they, they haven't said this to the Prophet yet, meaning Allah is telling them that very soon they're going to come and they're going to give you the following excuses, exposing them. شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلُونَا فَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا so they come to the Prophet, the Prophet already knows what their excuse is going to be because Allah told, Allah has revealed these verses. So they come to the Prophet and they say, Ya Rasulullah, you know, we're busy with our businesses, our wealth, our families, we can't leave our families unattended, our wives, our children need us, we have family obligations. They started to make these excuses. And then Allah says what? يَقُولُونَ بِأَلْسِنَتِهِمْ مَا لَيْسَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ Allah says, that they say with their tongues what is not in their hearts. They're not staying behind because of business. They're not staying behind because they're overprotective of their families. No, they have some very evil intentions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ مَنْ يَمْلِكُ لَكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ شَيْئًا إِنْ أَرَادَ بِكُمْ ضَرَّةً أَوْ أَرَادَ بِكُمْ نَفْعًا They were afraid of death. They were afraid of being harmed. 
by Quraysh. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, say to them, who then can stand between you and Allah in any way if He intends harm or benefit for you? Ultimately, everything's in Allah's hands. If Allah wants to afflict you, you could be sleeping in the comfort of your bed. And if Allah wants to protect you, and if He wants goodness for you, you can be in the middle of the heat of the battle, and Allah will protect you. Protection is in Allah's hands. Harm is in Allah's hands. Benefit is in Allah's hands. بَلْ كَانَ اللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ خَبِيرًا بَلْ ظَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يَنْقَلِبَ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِيهِمْ أَبَدًا وَزُيِّنَ ذَلِكَ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَظَنَنْتُمْ ظَنَّ السَّوْءُ وَكُنْتُمْ قَوْمًا بُورًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He reveals those nefarious motives, those evil thoughts that they had. Allah says, in fact, Allah is all aware of what you do. Allah knows what these Bedouins were planning. The truth is you thought, Allah is telling the the Arab, the Bedouins who were making excuses to stay behind. The truth is that you thought that the messenger and the believers would never return to their families again. They had this hope that yes, let Muhammad and his followers go towards Mecca and let let them get slaughtered. They're not going to come back. They're going to be killed. And we can marry their widows and we can take their wealth. This is their. This was their intention. They wanted to stay back because they thought Rasulullah and his companions would be killed and they would remain behind and they would reap all of the rewards. They would have all of these women available for marriage. They would have all of this property left behind. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And that was made appealing in your hearts. You had these thoughts and that was very appealing. You harbored evil thoughts about Allah and so became a doomed people. They missed out. Ultimately, they didn't get the tawfiq of joining the Prophet ﷺ. Now, in terms of of the number of people that joined the Prophet on this Uh, journey back to Mecca to perform pilgrimage. Now, as I said, whether whether it was Umar or Hajj is debated, but it seems that um, Hajj was was more likely what was intended. According to the historical sources, it's hard to pinpoint an exact number, but it seems that there were between 1,400 to 1,600 men who joined the Prophet. And it seems that the majority, if not all of them were men, with the exception of maybe a few women. I think Um Salama maybe joined uh, Rasulullah But the majority of them were men because of the, uh, the potential danger. And this, the fact that 1400 to 1600 men joined the Prophet reveals to us how much the community has grown. The Muslim community had grown exponentially within a short span of a few years. If you recall, my dear brothers and sisters, in the Battle of Badr, Rasulullah had about 300 male fighters who were with him. Now you see the Prophet has you know, more than quadrupled that amount. So Islam 
is is growing. Islam is a powerful movement. The Prophet ﷺ is attracting followers from different parts of the Arabian Peninsula. So the Prophet, he has this dream in the sixth year after the Hijrah. He has the dream in Shawwal. But he waits until the first of Dhul Qa'dah to set out. As I said, he sets out with about 1400 to 1600 people. Now, it seems that the reason why the Prophet delayed his journey to Mecca and he waited until Dhul Qa'dah is because as you know, in, in Zamanul Jahli, in the pre-Islamic era, there were four months that were known as Al-Ashhur Al-Hurum. They were known as the four sacred months. They are Dhul Qa'dah, Dhul Hijjah, uh, Rajab, and Muharram. So by setting out in the month of Dhul Qa'dah, the Prophet was essentially sending a message to Quraysh that I am beginning my journey towards Mecca in Dhul Qa'dah, and therefore I have no intention of fighting. I have no intention of waging war against Quraysh, waging war against the Mushrikeen. Now, the Prophet knew that it was very unlikely, according to his calculation and his assessment, it was very unlikely that Quraysh would want to pursue another full-scale military conflict. Why? Because, as I mentioned, the, the Quraysh had lost battle after battle. And this is after the Battle of Ahzab, which was a devastating loss. So, Quraysh, the enemies of Islam at this point, they, they couldn't afford to get into another battle with the Muslims. Quraysh just did not have the stomach to endure any more loss. So, the Mushrikeen understood that you know, there's a benefit in making peace with the Muslims. Yes, we have to swallow our pride, which is not easy. But at the very least, we need to allow our commerce to return to normal. So, they're at a point now, Quraysh is at a point now, where, where they, are, they are more inclined to diplomacy for the sake of uh, salvaging their, uh, their economic interests. So the Prophet ﷺ, he sets out during one of the sacred months, which is the month of Dhul Qa'dah, to send a message that he has no intention to wage war. Quraysh, they decided, now Quraysh from their side, they realized that just, just letting Muhammad and his followers enter Mecca would be very unwise. In fact, it would be dangerous from the perspective of Quraysh, because it would basically send a message to all of the neighboring tribes that Mecca is vulnerable, that Mecca is weak, that the arch enemy of Quraysh can enter Mecca whenever he likes. And this would potentially embolden others to invade Mecca. So what Quraysh does is that they say, we're not going to allow, we're not going to fight the Prophet, but we're not going to allow him to enter Mecca freely. So the leaders, the chiefs of Quraysh, 
they call a meeting, they discuss, they deliberate, and they call on their allies, and they decide to send 200 riders, 200 soldiers, if you will, under the command of Khalid ibn al-Walid. And this shows you that Khalid ibn al-Walid, before his conversion to Islam, he was seen as a very uh, prominent uh, military commander. I mean, he, he, is, he was the guy who you call when you want to clean up a mess or when things get very heated. So they send Khalid ibn al-Walid. So the Prophet now senses that, okay, there's, there's tension here. So he consults with his companions on, on what to do. And this was the habit of the Prophet. And he consults them, you know, should we try to take the path of diplomacy or should we just enter and whatever happens, happens and we'll fight whoever gets in our way. So Rasulullah being the wise leader that he is, he consults with his companions. And this, this is actually something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet to do. That Ya Rasulullah, even though you are the most wise, you are the most knowledgeable, that you have to consult because it makes your followers and your companions feel respected. It makes them feel important. So include them in the deliberations. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for instance, in Surah Ali Imran, verse 159, he says, And then Allah says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and consult them in the matter. Consult with them. فَإِذَا عَزَمْتَ فَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُتَوَكِّلِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, consult with them, but when you decide, when you decide, when you make a, decisive, when you make a decision, go by your decision. Consult with them, but that doesn't mean you have to listen to them. You make the best decision that you think is wise and you place your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when the Prophet consulted his companions, the majority of them seemed to favor proceeding towards Mecca and fighting with anyone who got in their way. But the Prophet he decided against this. Instead of taking the main road to Mecca, he goes off the main road and he sets camp at Hudaybiyah, which was a valley that was about 22 kilometers west of Mecca. So Hudaybiyah is actually the name of a valley that was west of Mecca. Now as the Sahaba, they set camp, they notice, of course, it's, it was a long journey, they're thirsty, they go to the wells in Hudaybiyah and the wells are ne nearly dry. The heat, it was hot. So, they didn't know what to do. They turned to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. Rasulullah through a mu'jizah, he causes the wells to fill up with drinkable water and all of his companions. You can imagine, you know, it's not easy to, to quench the thirst of 1,400 or 1,600 people. And on top of that, you have animals. Rasulullah had brought 70 camels that were consecrated to, uh, to be sacrificed during the pilgrimage. The wells filled with water, 
and everyone is drinking. Among those who were drinking from the water was the chief of the Munafiqeen, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Abdullah ibn Ubay, this, 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 this man who created so much trouble for the Prophet, this hypocrite who is condemned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala many times in the Quran. He's drinking the water. One of, one of the companions of the Prophet, he says to him that, O oh Abdullah, how many more miracles do you have to witness for you to become a true mu'min? We know you're a munafiq, you're an opportunist. What, what, do you, what do you have to witness for you to be a true mu'min? Abdullah ibn Ubay, he, very, uh, he makes a very snide comment. He says that, you know what? I've seen such miracles before. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> Making it seem like this is something that's common. Where you have a dried up well and the Prophet ﷺ restores all of the water. As if this is an everyday occurrence. He says, oh, I've seen this before. It's not a big deal. So many of these Sahaba, they come frustrated. They, you know, there's a, an altercation is about to happen. Abdullah ibn Ubay to avoid controversy, to avoid drama and to create, avoid creating a storm for himself. He comes, he goes and he apologize, apologizes to the Prophet. And it seems he does this just to uh, save face. Now while the, the pilgrims, while the companions are encamped at Hudaybiyah, the local tribe, Banu Khuza'a, they provide for their daily needs. You know, they give them water and other, other things that they may need. Now, the tribe of the Banu Khuza'a, they were not Muslims. They had not embraced Islam, but they were... They had allied themselves with Rasulullah Why? Because they wanted to counterbalance a strong alliance that their rival had. Their rival was Bani Bakr, and Bani Bakr, they had an alliance with Quraysh. So to counter that strong alliance, Banu Khuza'a said, okay, we're going to align ourselves with Muhammad. So they're not Muslims, but they had an alliance with Rasulullah. So because of that alliance, they gave them a little bit of support and help when they were camped at Hudaybiyah. So the Khuza'a, Banu Khuza'a, they were the Prophet's allies within Mecca. Now, Budayl ibn Warqa al-Khuza'i, he kept the Prophet informed on developments within Mecca. Ibn Hisham, he reports the following tradition, the following report. فَلَمَّا طَمَأَنَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ أَتَاهُ بُدَيْلٍ إِبْنِ وَرَقَاءَ الْخُزَاعِ After the Prophet settled in Hudaybiyah, after he set up camp in Hudaybiyah, a man by the name of Budayl, who is from Banu Khuza'a, he came with other men from the tribe of Khuza'a. فِي رِجَالٍ مِنْ خُزَاعَ فَكَلَّمُهُ وَسَأَلُوا They came to the Prophet. They see the Prophet is in Hudaybiyah. They asked the Prophet, Why have you come to Mecca? What is your intention? So the Prophet فَأَخْبَرَهُمْ So they ask him, مَا الَّذِي جَاءَ They ask him about what, what is the reason why you came. So the Prophet says, So the narration says, فَأَخْبَرَهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ لَمْ يَأْتِي يُرِيدُ حَرْبًا The Prophet says to them, that listen, I have not come to seek war. The Prophet says, I've only come 
to visit the Kaaba, to visit the sacred house of God, and to venerate it, and to sanctify it. ثُمَّ قَالَ لَهُمْ نَحْوَ مِمَّا قَالَ لِبِشْرِ بْنِ سُفْيَانِ The Prophet, the narration says, the Prophet told them what he told Bishr ibn Sufyan, which was another conversation that he had. Again, emphasizing that he, had, he was not coming to fight, he simply wants to come and perform the pilgrimage. فَرَجَعُوا إِلَىٰ قُرَيْشِ So, Budayl and the other uh, men from Banu Khuza'ah, they go back to Quraysh. So again, Banu Khuza'ah, they're in Mecca, they go back to Quraysh, and they say to them, فَقَالُوا يَا مَعْشَرَ قُرَيْشِ They say to them, O Quraysh, إِنَّكُمْ تُعَجِّلُونَ عَلَىٰ مُحَمَّدِ You are too hasty, you're acting hastily with Muhammad. إِنَّ مُحَمَّدًا لَمْ يَأْتِ لِقِتَالِ Muhammad has not come to fight a war with you. وَإِنَّمَا جَاءَ زَائِرًا هَذَا الْبَيْتِ He's simply come to honor this house, to honor the Kaaba. So, Quraysh, their response is a negative one. They say, وَإِنْ كَانَ جَاءَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ قِتَالًا So what if he is coming and he doesn't want to fight? فَوَاللَّهِ لَا يَدْخُلُهَا, لا يدخلها عَلَيْنَا عَنْوَةً أَبَدًا وَلَا تُحَدِّثُ بِذَلِكَ عَنَّ الْعَرَبِ Quraysh, they say that even if he is not coming to fight, he is still not going to enter our city by force. We do not want people to talk about us Arabs. We don't want people to say that Quraysh is weak and even their enemies walk into their city without any opposition. So they say, no, it's, it's bad for our image if Muhammad is going to just enter uh, without, uh, without us stopping him. So the Quraysh, they send, they send emissary after emissary to speak to the Prophet to kind of figure out what does he want to do. The Prophet, he sticks to his demand. And he says that, listen, I, I, I've, I've come to perform hajj. I've come to perform pilgrimage. I'm not interested in fighting. I'm not here to fight. Now, when these emissaries see that the Prophet is truly not here to fight, it weakens the resolve of the Meccan allies. So even the allies of Quraysh, they're saying that, listen, you know, why are you guys being so stubborn with Muhammad? Why are you preventing him from entering Mecca? He just wants to visit Kaaba. So a man by the name of Al-Hulais ibn Al-Alqama, he has a conversation with the Prophet, and the Prophet says the same thing to him, that listen, we just want to perform pilgrimage, we're not armed, we don't want to fight. So this Al-Hulais, who was one of the leader, he was a leader of some of the, the neighboring uh, uh, tribes, the nomadic tribes. When he has a conversation with Rasulullah, he goes back to Quraysh, he says, Ya Ma'ashar Quraysh, wa Quraysh, Wallahi ma, ma ala hadha halafnakum, wala ala hadha aqadnakum, ana suddu an baytillahi man jaahu mu'adzima. He says, O Quraysh, by God, this is not what we pledged, and this is not the covenant we made with you. Is it right that one who has come to sanctify the Kaaba is being blocked from entering? So even these mushrikeen, it was considered blasphemous to prevent someone from visiting Kaaba. So even the even some of the allies of Quraysh, they saw this as something that was blasphemous and unjustifiable. So Hulais, who's not even a Muslim, 
He says, I swear by the one who holds the soul of Hulais, you must either leave Muhammad alone and let him fulfill the purpose he has come for, or I am going to take all of my people and we're going to leave. That we're going to basically nullify our alliance with you. And the, the response of Quraysh was what? They say to him, Mah. They say, be quiet, silent. Stay quiet, O Hulais, leave us alone. Leave us alone and let us do as we please. And this is where you see that now Rasulullah is he's at a standoff. There is a standoff now between the Muslims and Quraysh. And inshallah, in our next episode, we'll speak about the ongoing uh, negotiations and how this leads to the terms of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for tuning in. And uh, please join us for upcoming episodes of the life of Prophet Muhammad. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.